This is Archive Atlanta, episode 242, Atlanta Humane Society Replay. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So this week I am in the midst of the holiday frantic trying to do everything, trying to go to all the parties, trying to buy all the things, prepare for everything, work, kids, school stuff. And so, you know, I'm trying. I'm trying my best. I have a bunch of episodes half done. I have actually some great interviews I'm going to release into the new year. But for now, I wanted to re-release an episode from April of 2022. It's one of my favorite episodes. At the time of recording that, the Atlanta Humane Society was in the midst of opening its new facility on the west side. It has since been open and is in use. And so if you've ever been there, volunteered there, um, or just driven by, I think the history of Atlanta's organized efforts to protect and care for animals is really interesting. And if you haven't listened before, I hope you enjoy. So this week, I'm covering the long history of Atlanta's organized efforts to protect or care for animals. From the formation of the Atlanta branch of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in 1871, to its reorganization as the Atlanta Humane Society in 1890, to its brand new building in 2022. This story was so fascinating, and I hope you enjoy learning as much as I did researching. I want to start with the changing attitude towards animals that the Victorians brought about. And this is a very niche topic I've always been very interested in because I grew up with two immigrant parents who both grew up with farm animals and have very much a working relationship towards them. When and how our attitudes towards certain animals shifted could probably be its own podcast series. But in summary, the Victorians are credited with quote unquote turning beasts into man's best friend. Queen Victoria had several dogs, and while working class families could only afford pets like small birds, pedigree dogs were a status symbol for the upper class. Wild animals also became a thing, uh, and people had exotic pets like monkeys and parrots. So what kind of animals lived in Victorian-era Atlanta? Dogs were not just pets. They were used in rural areas for herding sheep, uh, hunting foxes and rabbits and retrieving game. They could also be used as guard dogs and Fulton County had a pack of hounds they used to chase down escaped prisoners. Horses and mules were indispensable. Horses served as personal vehicles for families that could afford one. And they also pulled carriages and they also pulled drays and hacks, which were the 1800 versions of taxis. Mules and sometimes horses also powered Atlanta's earliest streetcars before they were steam and electric powered. Rural farmers would also bring their crops and animals to the city for market, so at any given time, you could easily find cows, chickens, and the like. The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals is the oldest animal welfare organization in the United States, founded in 1866 by a New Yorker named Henry Berg. It was modeled after the British version. By 1871, Atlanta was discussing starting its own chapter, and then two years later, 1873, we had a statewide Georgia Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals um, that had a headquarters in Augusta, and it had a small branch in Atlanta. The efforts here were credited to Captain Joseph F. 
Burke, uh, he wrote a letter in 1914, kind of like reflecting on his time. And he lamented about how post-Civil War at 1870s Atlanta was, quote, a rendezvous for gamblers, thugs, and dogfighters, and the municipal government was a motley crew, and a humane ordinance was considered effeminate, end quote. In 1875, Atlanta passed its first ordinance pertaining to animal welfare, drafted by Burke, and it was focused against cruelty towards working horses and mules. Um, it was also used to end rooster and dog fighting. The first prosecution by the Atlanta SPCA was in 1876 against a black boy who was the son of Willis Cook. Uh, apparently his mule dropped dead on Broad Street Bridge, and then Mr. Nunnally uh, who used to own this family, represented him against Judge Hopkins. And do not worry, we will talk about these legal cases very soon. The ASPCA also had a woman's branch led by Nellie Peters Black, and in 1877, they worked to plan and install six animal drinking fountains throughout the city. The first one was Terracotta, and it was designed by Mr. Pellegrini of Castleberry and Company Terracotta Works. The remaining years of the 1880s were a little murky, so I assume the organization was inactive because there's a lot of references both in 1885 and 1888 to reorganize or revitalize the Atlanta Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. It would not be until 1890 that the group was reorganized as the Atlanta Humane Society. In the fall and winter of that year, large meetings were held at the YMCA, led mostly by men, with appearances by the Women's Christian Temperance Union. There were also out-of-town visitors, like Mrs. Lovell from Philadelphia Humane Society, who advocated for more drinking fountains and the engagement of clergy and schoolchildren. There was also Mrs. Mills from Boston who came to Atlanta to distribute 500 copies of Black Beauty to all cab drivers and livery stable keepers. This was one of the funnest parts of this research because that was my favorite book as a child. I actually still have it. I hope my daughter will want to read it one day. It has not worked so far. But I had no idea that this book was written in 1877 by Anna Sewell, and it was used to catalyze Victorian animal rights activists. So from what I can understand, because it is written in the horse's point of view, it just helped people, you know, think like the animal would be thinking. By their second meeting, the Humane Society had elected officers led by R.J. Lowry um, and had elected B.B. Watkins as their agent. So an agent basically was the person that investigated and prosecuted animal cruelty cases. By December of 1890, there were 90 card-carrying members of the Atlanta Humane Society and then 100 by January. The cost of membership was $1 per year with a higher tier for wealthier people that could afford to contribute $10 a year. So the way that this first set was set up um, is as follows. The city is full of horses and mules and cows are being brought in by farmers. And the Humane Society establishes four citywide locations. They are all inside pharmacy slash drugstores. Um, they are the stores of Elk and Watson, Schumann, Sharp, and Spence. And so when you would go inside, there would be a sign that said, Atlanta Humane Society, leave complaints within. And then next to there would be an offense book. So once a day, an agent of the Humane Society went in, checked the book, followed up on complaints and or investigated. So for minor complaints, they would ask the person to either bring an animal into shelter, 
um, get them out of the elements or provide more food or water. And then for major complaints, it would get sent to the police or they would get fined. The first major case came in February of 1891. Neil Wilson, a black man, was charged with beating his mule over the head at the corner of Simpson and Marietta Streets. Agent Watkins was apparently able to find enough evidence to get him convicted and sentenced to a $50 fine or six months on the chain gang. So if you have not picked up on this, the first two cases and convictions we have are of black men in an era of Jim Crow, convict leasing, etc., etc. And so when I was doing this research, I immediately saw this issue emerge. And then it was really validating to find an editorial in the paper from that same year where a fellow citizen was equally concerned. And one of the biggest callouts was that the streetcar companies were using mules and horses and no one was fining them, nobody was bringing cases against them, nobody was arresting them. Dr. W.J. Tucker, who was the author of this letter, writes that, quote, a poor black drayman was convicted and sent to the chain gang and the West End line and others are still using their mules and mistreating them. To whom does the law for prevention of cruelty to animals apply? Should poor draymen be prosecuted and rich corporations unpunished? End quote. Mike drop Dr. Tucker. By May of 1891, the city passed an ordinance where the condition of hack horses would be inspected by the chief of police, and then they hoped to later add dray horses and mules. So real quick, hack horses are those that are ridden for pleasure and or used to pull carriages, and then dray horses are what we probably call today draft horses. There was also a discussion about how to deal with chicken coop overcrowding, so this was apparently a problem. There was many chickens for sale in the city, and they would be in cramped cages left in the sun all day, and they had had two that recently died. So there was like a model chicken coop design that was being suggested throughout the city. And this is also a great time to bring up that the Humane Society wasn't just for animals. In this time, agents often looked out for abandoned children or those that weren't being properly cared for. And you have to remember, this is the era of rampant child labor. So by the summer of that year, they were able to outlaw cockfighting, um, and they worked on 100 cases each month involving animals and or children. Typically, the children in these cases were sent to the Home for the Friendless, which I talked about in the orphanages episode. The Atlanta Humane Society continued to grow at a slow pace, reaching 200 members by August of 1891 and then a small push after a fundraising gala at the Opera House. They worked to re-educate people about horses' head height, so apparently it was custom or tradition to pull the reins really tight and have your horse's head up really high. Um, they tried to under help people understand that that wasn't where a horse's head should naturally be, that they should be allowed to bow their heads naturally. Um, when there was a freak snowfall in January of 1893, it shut down all the streetcar lines. And so all of the taxi horses were, you know, working overtime. It was the Humane Society that kept them warm with blankets and made sure they had food. In 1895, Atlanta had the Cotton States and International Exposition, which I talked about in episode uh, 111. And the Humane Society had exhibit space uh, in the Liberal Arts Building, but they also spearheaded the fight against the proposed bullfight, which was held in the Mexican village. So President Collier of the ex exposition, he's like, no, 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 don't, it's not really real. The bulls are gonna have padded horns. You know, the matadors will have wooden sticks. The Humane Society was, wasn't buying it and or didn't care that it was gonna be edited in that way. Um, it was a huge drama 
too much for this for this episode, but eventually they lost the fight and this edited bullfight was held. In 1898, the Humane Society rented a vacant store on Whitehall Street and they booked the beautiful Jim Key to visit. Beautiful Jim was a famous performing horse of the 20th century who could read, write, spell, do math, change money, and file letters, among many other things. Uh, He was owned by Dr. William Key, who was a formerly enslaved man that became a veterinarian. And so what he did was he loaned out his horse to animal rights organizations across the country as a way for them to raise money for their causes. In that same year, the society processed five cases of cruelty, saved 59 disabled animals, euthanized 13 homeless animals, they destroyed 30 horses, mules, and cows, they cared for seven horses, investigated 261 cases, and had installed a new veterinary ambulance into service. By the way, at this point in history, euthanized horses were not cremated, most euthanized animals were not cremated. So by 1901, there were at least 200 dead horses buried in what is described as near the old Emory Market, which was a market on or near Broad Street in downtown Atlanta. By the turn of the 20th century, dogs were becoming a large focus for the Atlanta Humane Society, mostly because of rabies. Dr. William Carnes was a local veterinarian, but also the Humane Society's uh, special officer, and he worked with them for many decades. He spearheaded the change in how stray dogs were captured. So the current method was that young boys would lasso them um, and then end up like playing with them. And he suggested that the city should switch to nets. Um, In 1908, There was discussions about the catching and euthanizing of stray dogs to be turned over completely to the Humane Society. Um, They set about, you know, all these big ideas. So the present law, which was like 50 years old at the time, said that the city clerk would employ a dog catcher and that all dogs caught would be killed by bludgeoning. And so the Humane Society proposed killing them more humanely um, by gas and then cremating them. Now, the sad part is that they weren't able to transfer this over. There was some legality issue where the city couldn't transfer funds to the Humane Society. Horses continued to be a main part of the mission, even into the 1900s. In 1908, there was the first workhorse parade. And this is a pretty genius idea, I think, on the society's part, because it kind of baited the owners of working horses to prep and clean them and, you know, feed them well to be in this parade with under the guise of like winning a ribbon or two. And it's really fascinating to see all of the industries who used horses in this time um, and they lined them up. It was It's amazing. So there was mounted police, uh, fire department, ambulances, mail service, sanitation, candy and bakeries, laundry, grocery, um, express mail, transfer companies, dairy delivery, fruit and produce, ice and coal, livery, and hacks and cabs. And so while it was a huge success, everyone really enjoyed it, it didn't seem to really affect much change. Just four years later, 20 working horses had dropped dead in a three-day period because of overwork and lack of water. And so we're back to kind of this fountain discussion. While the city had 38 fountains for animals, there were only four in the crowded downtown business district, which is where 75% of working horses could be found. And there's a reason for that. The majority of drivers or those that were handling horses were black men. 
and businesses did not want a fountain near their shop because of fears of black men congregating near or on their property. By 1914, there was a group of women fundraising and campaigning for more fountains. Um, There was a lot of push to raise money. I think retiring President Burke made a promise that he would dedicate $5,000 if the society could raise $20,000. With a new president at the helm, the Humane Society continued its work, which included shutting down a show on the outskirts of town where a monkey was trained to dodge balls thrown at it by paying customers. They also worked to get the Atlanta Zoo to separate raccoons and monkeys, which they had been putting together in the same pen, apparently. There were attempts to abolish the gifting of little chicks for Easter, um, and they established a Be Kind to Animals Week in local schools. By the 1920s, they were also protesting the whipping of convicts on the chain gang, which I am going to cover in a future episode. But they were actually successful in stopping the flogging practices against female prisoners at the city stockade. They also fought against a long-forgotten hair trend from 1920, which was wearing live lizards in your hair. So there were men selling uh, chameleons on the streets of Atlanta, They were unsurprisingly called chameleon men, and it was the Atlanta Humane Society that managed to get them banished. And there's a Constitution reporter um, wrote about this, and I have to read it because it's just hilarious. Um, He says, quote, goodbye to our pretty hair ornaments, but at least the men will feel safer for at a recent dance, it is stated when the best beau of a Druid Hills girl started to whisper sweet nothings in her ear, the chameleon became loosened from her hair and fell into the man's mouth, end quote. In 1921, a modern dog pound opened at 1035 Marietta Street, modeled after the city dog pounds of Boston, Massachusetts. The facility in Marietta had an electrocution chamber for euthanasia, uh, and it had planned to start dog wagons, basically like a dog catcher wagon. Rabies was, again, a huge issue in Atlanta, and city council passed an ordinance that required all dogs be muzzled. And so the Humane Society sprung to action. They're like, please do not muzzle your dogs. It's inhumane. They can't eat. They can't drink easily. Um, But they were overruled. In 1924, they funded and operated the first dog ambulance in the city. By the following year, they established the Pet Parade to coincide with the Better Homes Week, which I covered in episode 116. Um, And they had pet parades for a decade or two. So there's actually a pet parade in 1934 that they held in the Wren's Nest in the West End. And it had dogs, ponies, cats, rabbits, turtles, and snakes, um, part of, I think, 150 animals total. And they gave out 40 prizes. By 1927, the Humane Society began the practice of giving away dogs in adoptions that we think are so normal today, but this was a novel idea in the 20s. In 1932, a new shelter opened alongside the Marietta Street Building, donated by Mrs. J.P. Stevens, and it had a small bird bath donated by the Samuel Inman School. By 1933, the Atlanta Humane Society had cared for 11,000 animals that year, and it had fought against vivisection at local colleges. Um, This was the practice of dissecting live animals, which actually was fairly commonplace. The Depression was a rough time for all, especially the society. Uh, There were desperate calls for fundraising or that the shelter would have to close. 
1941, they were trying to raise funds for a dog cemetery as well as deal with the influx of homeless dogs because of their owners going off to World War II um, or passing away during the war. It was in 1942 that the Atlanta Humane Society became an official nonprofit. And in 1954, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals of Greater Atlanta merged with the Atlanta Humane Society to become the Atlanta Humane Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, Inc. Lots of words there. (laughs) This is why we use acronyms. Uh, In 1961, they broke ground for a new building, which had replaced the one from 1929. In 1962, they elected the first female president, Miss Judy King. Um, She has a fun story. She was a big equestrian and a daughter of a pretty prominent family. Uh, The 70s were packed with more fundraisers, facility expansions, And by 1984, the Atlanta Humane Society was ranked as among the best in the nation. This was a really tough feat because it's the same time of crisis for the Atlanta Zoo, which I talked about in the zoo episode. So like a lot of national news would kind of lump the Humane Society in with the issues of the zoo, and they were able to separate themselves from that. So there you have it, the story of the Atlanta Humane Society. They just completed a brand new animal center that's on Perry Boulevard, and I think it's it's not open yet. I think it's going to open in the summer or the early fall. And so you can go there to adopt your your future pet. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review. You could also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.